Chapter 4 of Stories from the Trenches, Humorous and Lively Doings of Our Boys Over There. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stories from the Trenches, Humorous and Lively Doings of Our Boys Over There by Carlton B. Case. Chapter 4. In the Trail of the Hun. War had become so much a part of the life of the French peasants that they have little fear under fire. Frenchmen over military age and French women pursue their ordinary advocations with little concern for exploding shells. To be sure, it is something of a nuisance, but children play while their mothers work at the tub washing soldier clothing. And as the Allied armies advance, resting a mile or two of territory from the enemy at each stroke, the peasant follows with his plow less than a mile behind the lines. War has become a part of their lives. Newman Flower of Castle's Magazine has been out there, and he thus records some of his impressions in the trail of war. The war under the earth is a most extraordinary thing. In the main, the army you see in the war zone is not a combatant army. It is the army of supply, the real fighters you seldom set eyes on unless you go and look for them. And, generally speaking, the ghastliness of war is carried on beneath the earth's level. Given time, the Boche will take a lot of beating as an earth delver. At one spot on the Somme, I went into a veritable underground town, where, till the British deluge overtook them, 3,000 of the toughest Huns the Kaiser had put into his line lived and thrived. They had sets of compartments there, these men, with drawing rooms complete, even to the piano, kitchen, bathroom, and electric light, and I was told that there was one place where you could have your photograph taken, or buy a pair of socks. Every visitor down the steps, except the British, was required to turn a handle three times, which pumped air into the lower regions. If you descended without pumping down your portion of fresh air, you were guilty of bad manners. Anything more secure has not been invented since Adam. But this impregnable city fell last year, as all things must fall before the steady pressing back of British infantry. The writer tells of discovering an old French town that was then under fire a shell-torn building on which were displayed two signs reading, First Aid Post and Barber Shop. He says, When I dived inside, I saw one man having his arm dressed, for he had been hit by a piece of shell in the square, and in a chair a few yards away, a Tommy having a shave. Coming in as a stranger, I was informed that if I didn't want a haircut or a shave, or hadn't a healthy wound to dress, this was not the Empire Music Hall, so I had better hop it. It was in hopping it that I got astride an unseen fiber of British communication. I went into the adjoining ruins of a big building, a single solitary statue stood aloof in a devastation of tumbled brick and stone. Then, as I was stepping from one mound of rubble to another, as one steps from rock to rock on a seashore, I heard voices beneath me. The wreckage was so complete, so unspeakably complete, that human voices directly under my feet seemed at first startling and indefinite. Moreover, to add to my confusion, I heard a baying of sheep, likewise under the earth. But I could see no hole, no outlet. With the average curiosity of the Britisher, I searched around till I discovered a small hole, a foot in diameter, maybe, and a Tommy's face framed in it laughing up at me. Hello, he said. I pulled up, bewildered, and looked at him. What in heaven's name are you doing in there? I asked. We're telephones. Got any matches? I heard sheep, I informed him. And what if you did? Got them matches? I tossed him a box. He dived into darkness, and I heard him rejoicing with his pals because he'd found someone who'd got a light. It meant almost as much to them as being relieved. 
So here was a British unit hidden where the worst Hun shell could ever find it. And, what was more, here was the food ready to kill when, during some awkward days, the Boche shells cut off supplies. Then look on this picture of a war-desolated country where nature had been stupidly scarred by Teuton ruthlessness, and rubble heaps are marked by boards bearing the name of the village that had stood there. The desert was never more lonely than those vast tracts of land the armies had surged over, and this loneliness and silence are more acute because of the suggestions of life that have once been there. It is impressive, awe-inspiring, this silence, like that which follows storm. Clear away to the horizon, no hedge or tree appears. All landmarks have gone. Hills have been planed level by the sheer blast of shells. Here is a rubble heap, no higher than one's shoulders where a church has stood, and the graves have opened beneath pits of fire to make new graves for the living. Patches of red powder, washed by many rains, with a few broken bricks among them, mark the places where houses, big and small, once rested. To these rubble heaps, which were once villages, the inhabitants will come back one day, and they will scarcely know the north from the south. Indeed, if it were not for the fact that each rubble heap bears a board whereon the name of the village is written, in order to preserve the site, they would never find their way there at all, for the earth they knew has become a strange country. Woods are mere patches of brown stumps knee-high, stumps which, with nature's life restricted, are trying to break into leaf again at odd spots on the trunks where leaves never grew before. Mammoth's wood and trone wood appear a short distance as mere scrabblings in the earth. The ground which but a few months ago was blasted paste and pulverization has now under the suns of summer thrown up weed growth that is creeping over the earth as if to hide its hurt. Wild convolvulus trails cautiously across the remains of riven trenches and levers itself up on corners of sandbags. In this tangle, the shell holes are so close that they merge into each other. The loneliness of those psalm fields. No desert of the world can show such unspeakable solitude. One comes from the psalm to the freed villages as one might emerge from the desert to the first outposts of human life at a township on the desert's rim. Still, there are no trees on the skyline. They have been all cut down carefully and laid at a certain angle beside the stumps, just as a platoon of soldiers might ground their arms. For the German frightfulness is a methodical affair, not aroused by the heat of battle, but coolly calculated and senseless. Of military importance, it has none. In these towns evacuated by the Germans, life is slowly beginning to stir again and to pick up the threads of 1914. People who have lived there all through the deluge seem but partially aware as yet that they are free, and some others are returning hesitatingly. Mr. Flower notes with interest the temperamental change that has been wrought by war in the man from 20 to 35 years old. To the older ones, it all is only a beastly uncomfortable nuisance, and when it is over, they will go back to their usual avocations. Here is the general view of the middle-aged men in the battle line. What are you going to do after the war? I asked one. I believe he thought I was joking, for he looked at me very curiously. Do? he echoed. I'm going to do what any sane man of my age would do. I'm going straight back to it. Back to work. This is just marking time in one's life, like having to go to a wedding on one's busiest mail day. I'm not going to exploit the war as a means of getting a living, or emigrate, or do any fool thing like that. I'm going straight back to my office. I am. I know exactly where I turned down the page of my sales book when I came out. It was page 79, and I'm going to start again on page 80. 
With the younger men, it is different. It has struck a new spark in them and fired a spirit of adventure. There are those who even enjoy the war, and to whom one day, when peace comes, life will seem very tame. The writer cites this case. He is quite a young man, and what this adventurous fellow was before he took his commission and went to war, I do not pretend to know. But he displayed most conspicuous bravery and usefulness from the hour he fetched up at the British front. One day he was very badly wounded in the back, and as soon as he neared convalescence he became restive and wished to return to his men, and he did return before he should have done. The doctor knew he would finish a deal quicker when he got back to the lines than he would in a hospital. There were some rare creatures who were built that way. Shortly afterward he was wounded again, and while walking to the dressing station was wounded a third time, on this occasion very badly. He stuck it at the hospital as long as he could. Then one day he disappeared. No one saw him go. He had got out, borrowed a horse, and ridden back to his lines. The absence of the fighting men from the view of an observer of a modern battle strongly impressed the writer, who says, Most men who come upon a modern battle for the first time would confess to finding it not what they expected. For the old accepted idea of battle is hard to eliminate. One has become accustomed to looking for great arrays of fighters ready for the bout, with squadrons of cavalry waiting somewhere beyond a screen of trees, and guns, artfully hidden guns, bellying smoke from all points of the compass. The battle pictures in our galleries, the lead soldiers we played with as children, and engaged in visible conflict, have kept up the illusion. You know before you come to it that that is not so in this war. But this battle of hidden men pulls you up with a jolt as not being quite as what you expected to see. You feel almost as if you had been robbed of something. The first battle I saw on the Western Front I watched for two and a half hours, and during that time, with the exception of five men who were debouched from a distant wood like five ants scuttling out of a nest of moss to be promptly shot down, I did not see a man at all. The battle might have been going on in an enormous house, and I standing on the roof trying to see it. But if there is little or nothing to be seen of the human agents that direct the devastating machines of war during a battle, the scene of the field after the fights has been waged discloses all the horror that has not been visible to the eye of an observer. Mr. Flower thus describes one section of the theater of war in France. Our car rushes down a long descending road, and is driven at breakneck speed by one of those drivers with which the front is strewn who are so accustomed to danger that to dance on the edge of it all the time is a breath of life. To slow down to a rational 30 miles an hour is to them positive pain. To leap shell holes at 50 or plow across a newly made road of broken brick at the same velocity is their ecstasy. And one of the greatest miracles of the war is the cars that stand it without giving up the unequal contest by flying into half a hundred fragments. But this road is tolerable even for a war road, and it runs parallel with a long down, which has been scrambled out here and there into patches of white by the hands of men. It is Notre Dame de Lorette, no higher than the average Sussex down, mark you, and lower than most. Yet I was told right on this patch of down over a hundred thousand men have died since the war began. Running at right angles at its foot is a lower hill, no higher than the foothill of Debershire Height but known to the world now is Vimy Ridge. And this road leads you into a small section of France, a section of four square miles or so, every yard of which is literally soaked with the blood of men. On the right is Suchet, and the wood of Suchet all bare stumps and brokenness. 
Here the sugar refinery, which changed hands eight times, and is now no more than a couple of shot-riddled boilers, tilted at odd angles with some steel girders twirled like sprung wire rearing over them, and around this conglomeration a pile of brick powder. You wonder what there was here worth dying for, since a rat would fight shy of the place for want of a square inch of shelter. And where is the Suchet River, you ask, for Suchet River is now as famous as the Amazon. Here it is, a sluggish sort of a brook, crawling in and out of broken tree trunks that have been blasted down athwart it, running past banks a foot high or so, a river you could almost step across, and which would be well nigh too small to name in Devonshire. We leave our cars under a bank and come on down through the dead gestum of the village of Alban St. Nazaire. The old church is still here on the left, the only remnant of a respectable rate-paying hamlet. The remaining portion of its square tower is clear and white, for the stonework has been literally skinned by flying fragments of steel, till it is as about as clean as it was when it was built. We reach the foot of Vimy Ridge and climb up. Here, someone told me, corn once grew, but now it is sodden chalk, pasted and mixed as if by some giant mixing machine with the shattered weapons of war. Broken trenches, the German front line, in places remain and extend a few yards, only to disappear into the rubble where the tide swept over them. As we climb, the earth beneath my foot suddenly gives way, letting me down with a jerk to the hip, and opening up a hole through which I peer and see a dead Bosch coiled up, his face, or so I suspect it was, resting upon his arm to protect it from some oncoming horror. We climb on up, we drop into pits and grope out of them again, pasted with the whiteness of chalk. From somewhere behind us, a howitzer is throwing shells over our heads, shells that come on and pass with the rush of a train pitching itself recklessly out of control. We listen to the clamor as it goes on, a couple of miles or so, separating itself from the ill assortment of snarling and smashing and breaking and grunting that rises from the battlefield. As they climb the ridge, the guns seem to be muffled until they got beyond the shelter of Notre Dame de Lorette. Then, says the writer, we suddenly appeared to tumble into a welter of sound, and the higher we climbed Vimy, the louder the tumult became. Auntie, throwing over heavy stuff, had but a few moments before been the only near thing in the battle. Now the contrast was such as if we had been suddenly pushed into the middle of a battle. The air was full of strange harsh noises and crackings and cries, and the earth before us was alive with subdued flame flashes and growing bushes of smoke. Five miles away, Lens, its church spires adrift in eddies of smoke, appeared very unconscious of it all. Just showing on the horizon was Douai, and I wondered what forests of death lay waiting between those Lens churches and the Douai outlines, where the ground was sunken and mysterious under the haze. Here then was the panorama of battle, never a man in sight, but the entire earth goaded by some vast invisible force. Clots of smoke of varying colors arrived from nowhere, died away, or were smudged out by other cloths. A big black pall hung over Givenchy, like the sounding board over a cathedral pulpit. A little farther on the village of Angris seemed palisaded with points of flame. Away to the right, the long straight road from Lens to Eras showed clear and strong without a speck of life upon it. No life anywhere, no human thing moving, and yet one believed that under a thin crust of earth the whole forces of Europe were struggling and throwing up sound. Among all the combatants, there is a desire for peace, says Mr. Flower, 
who found a striking example of the sentiment of the Boche in what had been in the crypt of the Bapaum Cathedral. He writes, I saw scores of skulls of those who were dead many decades before the war rolled over Europe, and on the skull of one I saw scribbled an indelible pencil. Das der Fried kommen mag. Hurry up, peace. Otto Trubner. Now, Otto Trubner may be a very average representative of his type. And maybe Otto Trubner's head now bears a passing likeness to the skull he scribbled on in vandal fashion before he evacuated Bapaum. But whether or no, he is, metaphorically speaking, a straw which shows the play of the wind. Some stunt. Try it. Sergeant, drilling awkward squad. Company! Attention company! Lift up your left leg and hold it straight out in front of you! One of the squad held up his right leg by mistake. This brought his right hand's companion left leg and his own right leg close together. The officer, seeing this, exclaimed angrily, And who is that bloomin' galoot over there holding up both legs? When the Hun quit smoking. Tommy 1. That's a top hole pipe, Jerry. Where'd you get it? Tommy 2. One of them German Huns tried to take me prisoner, and I inherited it from him. End of chapter 4.